Hello, listeners. This podcast episode was recorded prior to the Canadian government's announcement regarding the removal of the GST barrier for new construction, a topic we extensively covered in our interview. This development is truly exciting for our industry. It represents a significant stride in the right direction. To hear our thoughts specifically, just visit rensing.com. But without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Hello, and welcome to Sink or Swim, a weekly podcast brought to you by Rensink, where we take a deep dive into the prop tech, multifamily, and rental housing industry. In each episode, we uncover the technologies and strategies used to help overcome operational challenges and increase the value of your multifamily investments. So let's get into our conversation today. Welcome back to another episode of Sink or Swim, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the prop tech, multifamily, and rental housing industry. I'm your host, Giacomo Lattice, and I'm joined by Matt Hildebrand, as always. Matt, how are we doing? Doing well. Thanks, Giacomo. All righty. Today, we are joined by Jonathan and Gabriel Diamond from Well-Grounded Real Estate. Jonathan, Gabriel, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot, guys. Look forward. Absolutely. So I think a good way to start off the show is if you guys could provide our listeners with a little bit of an overview of Well-Grounded for those who might not be familiar with your organization, kind of what you guys do and where you see yourselves going. For sure. So Well-Grounded Real Estate is a private real estate investment and development company. We started in the 1950s largely building apartment buildings in Toronto, and later on began developing and acquiring shopping centers throughout southern Ontario and in some secondary markets, Barrie, Cambridge, Sarnia. And fast forward to today, we're still largely involved in the same asset classes. Our portfolio has grown to focus a little bit more in the multifamily sector with apartment buildings, both in the GTA as well as the Kitchener-Waterloo area. And while we've been mostly fueled by acquisition in the last five years, uh, sort of the next five to 10 years of our business is going to be focused on more infill development and some other development projects as well. That's awesome. Appreciate the overview there. So the reason we wanted to have you both on today was to discuss a topic that we've been talking a lot about recently and a topic I think we'll be talking about for the foreseeable future. And that's the supply issue that we're facing right now in Canada and GTA. So you both well versed on the this topic. So we wanted to just kind of start off and kind of get your opinions on why you think we're in the situation we are right now, and maybe explain why there's such a significant deficit of purpose-built rental apartments in Toronto. Well, I think in terms specifically in terms of, of purpose-built rental you know, as with any complex system, it's it's a combination of a lot of factors. I'm sure we'll go into more detail and, and, and touch on some of them a little bit later. And, you know, you always hear about rent control, the cost of land, you know, specifically in the GTA, rising cost of construction, and, and all of that play a major role. But I think you can really sum it up in terms of focusing on where investors can get returns and how you allocate capital. And, and to be frank, condo development has historically been a fantastic business. You know, you have exits in in five to seven years, you can generate sizable double digit returns. There was easy access to capital. Toronto had rising rents from from the perspective of investors that are that are looking to to fund these projects and, and use them to rent out. And you know, when you contrast that with the business model for purpose-built rental from from an investor standpoint i mean there's 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 a clear preference there and there's there's major differences in economics 
of condo development versus purpose-built rental. And, and there's a reason why capital has been allocated there. And I think Jonathan can touch on some of those differences in those models a little more specifically. But, but again, ultimately, as a developer, if you have the choice historically between building condo versus building rental, you know, in a lot of ways, it was an easy decision. That's interesting. Gabe, could you maybe summarize some of these key differences of these economic features between the two types of projects? Just maybe get like a little deeper dive into what exactly those are between the condo development and purpose-built rentals. For sure. I'll let, uh, I'll let Jonathan touch on that. He, he, he did a recent post on LinkedIn and, and created an, an infographic with, with one of our lenders to really try to popularize and, and, and make it a little bit more digestible for maybe the average person that's not involved in the industry or not involved in, in development per se. But I'll let Jonathan speak to it and then touch on a few things as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a big, it's a big problem in the city of Toronto that we have this deficit and then Gabe sort of said this was this multifaceted issue and economics being a significant part. So basically what we did with, in consultation with um, Oak Bank Capital, our debt advisors for a couple of projects we have on the go, we wanted to sort of compare and contrast condos versus apartment development. And the reason being is because people always say the numbers don't work. The numbers don't work. And the question is, well, why? And what does that mean? So really what this means, what this can, it really all boils down to how these two asset classes generate revenues. So on one hand, we have condos, which generate revenues all at once. And that would be at the closing of the condo sales. So when people purchase their, their units and apartments, it's, you don't have that exit. You basically, you can, of course you could sell the entire asset, but the individual units don't get sold. And so the revenues come sort of slow and steady over time as people are paying their rents monthly. And so what this translates to is a completely different model for funding. And again, this isn't a better or worse. It's just it's just the way it is. And if we were a lender, we would also view things exactly the same way. But at the end of the day, what this translates down to is apartment buildings require far more equity than condos do. The reason being that condos can reduce their equity requirement or their cash requirement, I could say, through pre-sales. So some of the monies to sort of complete these projects come from pre-sales and a portion is also not required until after the condos close, which is sort of the category of deferred costs, they say, whereas apartment buildings have none of that. And so this translates to, you know, a 30 to 40% equity requirement for the apartment buildings. And that's exasperated by low rent areas because the debt that an apartment requires is based on the cash flow that the apartment generates at the back end. So that's what you have to sell it. That's what you have to sort of focus on. And so this creates very difficult hurdles for what, for creating what Toronto needs most, which is sort of mid-market, lower income buildings. So this is why you see the apartments that do get built are in high rent areas, you know, charging five, six, seven bucks per square foot instead of two and a half or three that we really need. Yeah, just elaborate on that and put that another way. You could have the exact same building, one located at a very high rent area, Young and Bloor, and then one area that's a lot more west or a lot more east, you know, not not a central, exact same building, same project costs, and one of them will be significantly less feasible because you're not able to generate the rents. And if you can't generate the rents to form the basis of your takeout financing, then then you're not going to be able to service your construction loan. So, and in a lot of ways, it's, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword because some of these areas are the ones that in fact require more rental. 
family-oriented rental, bigger units where for a whole variety of other reasons, home, or, home ownership has, has become out of reach. So, you know, on the one hand, you, you actually need this rental, but just based on the structure and how they model out, it's actually a lot more difficult to build the exact same building in an area that's, that's not going to command the highest rents. Yeah, that's interesting. There was a, a recent article, I think it came out today or maybe yesterday, that highlighted the fact that there's a lot of condo projects being delayed as developers await a better market for launch. What is your kind of take on the fact that even though condos are maybe a more attractive option, the market though is still kind of not getting them to market? And if the market doesn't really improve, could you see a bit more of a shift back towards rental? Yeah, I mean, there's forces that are that would affect both asset classes equally. So planning times, planning uncertainty, interest rates, of course. So both building an apartment and building condominium require financing and financing is, is based on the prevailing rates. And so interest rates have a huge impact. The other component of this is, is construction costs, which are more or less the same between the two. And so these projects have to get developed and rising construction costs, shortages of labor all affect these projects from getting developed. So I think the reason why you hear this in the condo world is because most projects are condo. So by definition, the sort of discussions of the condo almost capture the market. So whether there's going to be a shift towards purpose-built rental, maybe, but again, it's difficult to know whether that's the reason or it's because there's going hopefully shifts in legislation and the demand is just getting so high that people start to shift their, their businesses. But time will tell. Yeah, but what you're also seeing though, right? Condos relying on investors or end users, but you know, you're relying on investors to buy these units. And what you're seeing now with rising interest rates is that you're seeing a huge flooding of resale units, you know, condos that were built five, 10 years ago, maybe these people, investors bought these units in a low interest rate environment, and they're going for a refi now, and they're finding they're underwater every month. And every year, every month, you know, that sort of goes by here, you're seeing more and more condos go on the resale market. And that's going to have an impact on on new developments as well. You know, I think developers are sitting here saying, hey, you know what, this is kind of a, a soft market for for some of our end users. You know, if they can't get the sales, if we can't get over $1,000 per square foot selling it, you know, suddenly it changes our underwriting. It's not as feasible to develop. Yeah, that's great, guys. And I think it's important to kind of delve a little bit more into that with like, yes, we know the challenges with interest rates, they change the landscape. We know population growth changes the landscape. There's a lot of factors that have affected this market across the country. You guys do a really good job, especially your LinkedIn post we're talking about, about showing these challenges associated with purpose-built rentals, the equity requirements needed. But can you guys highlight a little bit of some of these policy changes that maybe we can try to encourage apartment production Anything that you guys have mentioned before, anything you guys are seeing now in the landscape, like what actually has to change policy-wise before we start seeing significant change? So the way I'd frame this is you need to start with the objective, right? So it's very easy to jump into policy, but the question is, what are you trying to achieve? And I would argue that it's it's you need to take away the barriers to construction in generally, and you need to take away any biases that the market has towards condo construction. So there's two key elements in this. One is, or I say one key element is HST. So HST in the condo world is owed on the completion of the building. Whereas, and you don't have the sale of the asset to sort of fund that 
tax liability, whereas you do in the condo world. So policy changes that would help to defer those costs to an actual sale, for example, would go a long way. And one project that we have, this is you know, about 10% of our, our total project costs, which is, which is huge. And as we said before, due to the limitations of the debt coverage, this is all cash. So that's a really, really big policy change. And there's all the other policy changes related to code and related to zoning that would go a long way. But basically any adjustment that you can make to reduce the cost of building and reduce the timeline of building would go a long way. And so that would be the lens that these decisions have to be filtered by. Because right now, these things are just too expensive and they're too time-consuming. And the majority of your cost is construction, but you've got a whole chunk of the project that is not within the developer's control. So this would be anything that is sort of policy-related. And and that's really what the legislatures have a duty to, to focus on and aligning the development process to facilitate the production of the types of buildings that we need. I'll just elaborate on that a little bit. I think Jonathan is certainly yeah, absolutely correct in, in, in terms of fees, the cost of producing housing, you know, the impact that HST has on purpose real built rental, which which is immense, as well as development charges. And if you sort of take take a step back and view this a little bit more conceptually, although, you know, it's all, it is all numbers based, but again, it's, it's about incentives and capital allocation as a investor, as a developer, you have the, the freedom to choose how you allocate your capital. You can build multifamily apartment buildings in the GTA, or you can build multifamily apartments in Dallas or Florida or Denver, or, or, or you can build a completely different asset class. You can build industrial in Ontario. Or if you say, you know what, I'm, I quite frankly, I don't you know, like, like the risk involved here. I'm going to put my money in public equity markets or debt markets or anywhere where I'm comfortable with that risk return profile. So in terms of government regulation, whether it's at provincial, federal level, municipal is more in terms of, of, of zoning and, and DCs. But you know, when you're looking at it at a provincial or federal level, you have to you have to think about what are you trying to incentivize? What do you want? How do you want to stimulate your economy? And if you're looking at it and we're in the middle of a major housing crisis and a housing shortage, you know, there's certain levers that you can pull that are going to incentivize investment towards where you want it to be. You know, you sometimes see this in the manufacturing sector, you know, these enormous subsidies. Oh, we want a battery plant or electric cars. And, you know, you're putting tons of money towards that. And that helps to get that built and bring companies and incentivize companies to operate in Ontario or in Canada. And, and, and it's the same with housing. You know, if you have these levers, if you can, for HST as an example, if you can change it in terms of purpose-built rental to defer that HST requirement until the time that you sell that building, which may not be for 20, 30, 40 years, and you're reducing those soft costs by up to 10%. That's going to have some developers and investors redoing their pro forma, taking a look at the underwriting and say, okay, you know what? This is this is starting to pencil a little bit better. Maybe the, you know, we have some concerns about condo. We're interested in generating cash flow. Maybe it's a generational thing. And, and, and suddenly the numbers start, you know, as Jonathan said, equalize a little bit so that you can actually make a decision that's based on the market, not simply based on 
okay, what can I, what can I actually build? <laughs> because one of these models is, is, is simply not possible. So I, I always think about this in terms of incentives. And, and I think right now there's, there's a major misalignment between what Ontario and Canada, the framework that they've created and why our entire housing industry and system has selected for small bachelor one bedroom condos in high rises in extremely dense buildings, as opposed to whether it's low or, or, or mid-rise purpose-built rental or just other forms of housing, we've created a system that is selected for what is most financially feasible and what's going to earn the highest return and what's contributed to where we are today. You also mentioned both your really planning and zoning reform as a potential solution. How can you see that also making an impact in the development of purpose-built rentals and how we can possibly make it a little bit more feasible? Well, it's a huge time and money suck. And the way that we do zoning and, and site plan is very archaic. You've got, you've got an application that goes in and you get shuttled out to different departments. Different departments comment it. Some of the comments are, are one department says move the building north four meters and the other department says move it south four meters. And it's an issue. And so there needs to be a restructuring restructuring within the city of Toronto to move these projects forward. The problem is the city of Toronto is seen as a barrier to housing production, not a facilitator. And that's completely incongruent with what they say. So this is a huge issue. We have one example on our, on our, our Victoria Park project where the city of Toronto is asking us now to review the civil work, the sewer systems, and basically pay for the repair. I mean, as far as we're concerned, this kind of thing is completely unacceptable. These projects are already difficult to be built, and the developers can't foot the bill for problems that the city has gotten itself into. You know, we're not denying that there are problems, but the question is, this is this is an unreasonable request of developers when amidst a housing crisis, <laughs> especially groups like us that are trying to build innovative projects that the city requires. And so we need to completely rethink zoning so that these projects get, get approved. And we need to, again, have a, an overall vision of what are these controls designed to do, right? And I would say safety is one of them. We want buildings that are structurally sound. We want buildings that interface with the city's infrastructure appropriately and, and all of these things. But there's a lot of fat in these in this legislation that can be removed. And some of it counterintuitively actually prevents the types of sustainable topologies that we need to build, right? So a massive overhaul of zoning and site plan and code to include only what is necessary to produce safe buildings. And if you have anything there that mitigates the production of amazing buildings, you remove it. This goes for code as well. So, I mean, some specific examples are, are fire code that that prevents us from doing these high efficiency single stair buildings that are popular everywhere else in the world. There's angular planes. The number of units that have been lost in the city of Toronto due to angular planes has been immense. Setbacks. We have setback requirements on an infill site we have that is from our property line, but the property line is le le like next to a valley. There's no building there. The whole purpose, the whole intent of the rule was to have separation between buildings. So this kind of stuff has to get completely overhauled. The city has to be a collaborator and a partner in this, not just a, you know effectively a toll booth. I think that's a great point. I mean, Jonathan spoke you know to 
angular planes and setbacks. I, I think to his point, fire code is a major aspect in that. To be clear, it's not about being unsafe or putting any sort of tenant or owner at any risk. But we were at a conference once and, and, and somebody was discussing this and they put up a slide. And I, I think the initial slide was, does fire burn differently in different countries throughout the world? And of course, the answer is no. But there's areas in Europe, whether it's Germany, Denmark, some, some of these places where you know their fire code allows for point access block, single staircase, different forms of housing that would be smaller typologies that when you talk about things like missing middle, for example, that Toronto, Ontario, Canada desperately need that currently don't allow for that. We we actually have a, on one of our projects, we have some consultants in Europe and they were sort of joking that from their perspective in North America, I mean, it's not just Toronto, it's in the US as well, but they're kind of joking about the fire marshal as being the God. And that's sort of the biggest thing here. It's like, you can't, there's so many things that you can't actually do because our fire code seems to be outdated in a lot of ways. But I, I have a couple other anecdotes as well. I mean, we're we're developing a a mixed use project that that Jonathan's referenced earlier at at 1925 Victoria Park, and you know you're dealing with these different divisions in the city, and we're getting feedback about our facade color and design. I don't think that's a good use of city resources, you know, unless your your facade is is highly offensive for some reason. We have a mandate to make sure that we can rent these units or sell these units. And surely you can appreciate that we're going to come up with a design that we feel achieves that. <laughs> that shouldn't be a concern to the city. And it's it's a waste of time. It's a waste of resources. The same property, in hindsight, we made a little bit of an error, but <laughs> at the same property, one of the things that you know really delayed the project, not sorry, delayed some of the approvals and, and really stretched things out is that we have a requirement for a retail component to the building. And when we were looking at this problem, we said, we want to find a retailer that complements our residents, almost to the point of, of feeling like an amenity, but we want something that complements it and is also very additive to the community. You know, you drive around Toronto sometimes and how many condo buildings do you see for lease signs? in all the retail. You know, it's an afterthought, right? You've sold your units, you're comfortable with the return and your focus is all on the res side and the commercial components an afterthought. Unless, you know, you're able to get grocery store, your Starbucks, your bank, couple of perfect tenants for for that type of mixed use property. A lot of times it's an afterthought. So when we were looking at this, we said, "Hey, we want something that complements it. We're not looking to do a jewelry store or something, or, you know, somebody selling widgets, you know, like what is something that if I was a tenant of this building, would I wake up every day being like, you know what, I'm really happy I have this on the ground floor. And of course, you know, something like coffee is, is an obvious example, but the way our building was laid out, we said, you know, it'd be perfect here is a daycare. And so in speaking with our, with our brokers, we went out to the market, we spoke with a whole bunch of operators and we had a lot of interest. This particular area is underserved. We had a lot of interest and which led to a couple LOIs and eventually getting a conditional tenant. And so we were excited about this. We go back to the city and said, you know what, this, this is fantastic. We have a daycare. We're doing sort of mid-range rental. 
what a wonderful project, right? And the city got really hung up on this and said, well, based on where you want in the building, the, lo- the location of the daycare, we're concerned about shadows. Does it make sense on this side? Can, can you actually move the daycare to the other side of the building? We said, well, you know, a daycare, they have a mandate for outdoor space. You have to have 50% of your square footage allocated to an outdoor playground. They said, well, have you considered shifting the building and doing this, this, and this? And we're, we're sort of sitting there saying, well, the landlord wants the tenant. The tenant likes the space. The tenant knows better than all the parties what <laughs> what to look for and what would make a great space. And they've actually you know, put pen to paper, agreed on rent and a whole host of other factors. They're comfortable with it. And the city is saying, sort of putting up their hand and saying, actually, we don't really want this. Can you relocate it? Can you do this? Can you move it here? Can you move it there? And it's kind of like, in hindsight, we should have just said, you know, we'll find a retailer <laughs> and not even been proactive about it. And that was an error. But we thought, surely they'd, <laughs> they'd be thrilled about this. And it ended up burning time and meetings and it just so much went into it. And in the end, we've sort of been able to get that approval. But the amount of time that goes by and, and getting hung up on things that it's just not necessary. <laughs> so I digress, but you know, that's sort of an example of, to Jonathan's point, what is the highest value? Does it relate to safety? What are the absolute critical things that the municipality should be involved with from a, a planning or building code or zoning site plan perspective? And let's focus on that and try to trim all the fat elsewhere. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah, you guys have kind of touched on this a little bit through our conversation there about, you know, we're hitting all these roadblocks and changes we have to do and and different ideas. I really like to talk a little bit about the innovation, how that plays an effect and addressing these challenges. If you guys had any better models or any more efficient ways that maybe you've mentioned before, or you've mentioned in your LinkedIn posts or kind of things that you guys find are where we're going to go in the future, you know, offsite construction, productization, things like that. I like to learn a little bit more about how, how do we innovate? How do we get better? How do we see these challenges and then find the ultimate solution? It's a great question. I think you need to start on, again, sort of what is innovation and why and make sure it's the right innovation you know it's a term that's thrown around a lot we would sort of define it as any change to the design and construction process that makes buildings uh, better cheaper and faster and really the ultimate goal for any municipality creating housing is how do you do housing at scale and there's not a good model to accomplish that projects are one-off in nature and they don't scale well. And it's complicated, <laughs> which is why they don't scale well. But if anything, construction has gotten less efficient over time, not more efficient. So there's no sort of correlate in the construction world of Moore's Law and technology, where price drops drastically over time and quality gets better, quality slash speed, right? So that's sort of what we're talking about. And so there's this sort of illusion of innovation where you get these incremental improvements to a system, which is great because you're improving it. But if the system is the wrong system, then what you're doing is you're improving something that's not great. And that's kind of what we're doing right now. So there's better ways of managing the trades. There's some sort of technologies that you can overlay on current practices. And it, it, it helps to some degree. 
but I would argue that we're on the wrong innovation curve, right? So if you, if you, if anyone knows the example of Dick Fosbury, I believe it was the 1969 Olympics. Somebody's going to fact check me on that. But this is a guy who entered the Olympics as a high jumper and he completely changed the biomechanics of how one high jumps. And if you look at old videos, it's sort of hilarious what these athletes look like. They sort of like ran and like jumped over the bar with their feet. Their feet went over the bar as if you were like, you know, jumping over a puddle or something like that. And what Dick Fosbury did was sort of arc his back and then reverse over the bar and sort of, it's a little weird, but bio, counterintuitive, but biomechanically what, what happens is that the center of mass travels below the bar. So you don't actually have to jump as high, but you clear a higher bar height. And so this was super weird, but it was amazing. And he won a gold medal. And now every single person that does high jump uses this technique. So this would be what would be referred to as a step change in a technique. And that's precisely what we need to do in the building industry. So the step change would be introducing a new model of design and execution to build buildings faster, cheaper, and better. And one of the ways to do that is by creating and investing in, in a system, not individual buildings. So productizing the building so that you have better modeling using BIM, better software packages that can go direct to manufacturing, cutting out a lot of the fat on the developer side that we currently see, reducing change orders to zero, cutting time in half, and having design processes that scale to future projects. So that what you're doing is you're investing in a system and you're improving a system of housing delivery. And this is something that we're very interested in. I'll just jump in there on the, on the change orders. Years ago, we had a meeting with a one of the large construction companies in the city that, that builds a lot of condos and, and apartment buildings. And we're going through it and they, they sort of point out, you know, and here's here's our change order department. And it, it, was, it was very, you know, it was this comment that's in passing and anybody that's done any sort of renovation, you know, you do a small renovation at your house, you do a kitchen, you know, <laughs> you do a washroom, you, you know that it's just kind of the, in a lot of ways... This is the way it is, and things are going to go up in price. And you're going to open up a wall. You're going to find a couple of skeletons, and you're you know you're going to have to change your scope of work. But this comment kind of struck a chord with us, where it's like this change order department in a lot of ways is a profit center. Construction companies, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> you're changing things on site. You know there wasn't the level of detail in planning at the beginning to to try to troubleshoot various issues that that got brought up once you have all your subtrades and everybody's there and everyone's on site in the flesh that you have these these issues and it's a source of profit and how do we create you know to Jonathan's point a system that you are you eliminate those change orders as an example before it happens and you know there's this concept of in integrated project delivery which makes a whole ton of sense. It seems like it's common sense, but it's it's not as widely adopted by developers as, as you may think. But the idea of integrated project delivery is to try to have basically a lot of your, your main trades and, and certain consultants incentivized by the profit that your project can develop by, by being under budget working together, getting your key players involved much, much, much earlier in the process to say, okay, are there are there better ways of doing things? You know, here's how we're developing it. And we have X amount of labor on site. 
but we have all this labor because, you know, we have multiple trades all here at the same time and we're doubling up on supervisors or foremans or, or whatever the case may be. Okay, how do we trim the labor a little bit? Or storage, you know, there's so much, whether it's whatever it is, glazing, other building materials, and we have storage, multiple different locations. Okay, can we consolidate that? Is there a way or, or, or just trim the amount of time that we have things in storage or transportation? How do we, how do we optimize all of this so that trades and consultants, for example, are, are better aligned with being under budget as opposed to the opposite? That's so important. And prefabrication is, is part of it. And I think, Giacomo, you know, your question is like, why... Why haven't we done this? It feels like we've been hearing about prefab and modular for a long time now. It's not, this is not like a 2023 concept. You've, you've heard about it. And I think a lot of it is, is about sort of nobody really wants to be the first mover. And I think if you're a, a large developer or a construction company that can successfully deliver start to finish a few buildings that carry this out and you can go to other principals at development companies or heads of construction or whatever the case may be and say, here's your traditional port in place concrete building. Here's what it would have cost. All these stats. Here's the length of time it would have taken to deliver. And here are the hards, here are the softs, and this is what it is. And here's what we were able to achieve. And you can concretely say, this is better, cheaper, faster. And here's what it looks like. Here's your IRR to investors. And here is why you should do that. I think it explodes. Now, from there, you have to be able to scale it, right? And so prefab, it's, it's critical that it's decentralized. If you have one manufacturer that has a factory and you're limited by the capacity of that one factory, that's not scalable, especially at the, at the pace of development today. So it has to be decentralized. Firstly, you have to have other manufacturers that are that are capable of carrying this out as opposed to, you know, one company. But I think once you can start to get some of these key players on board and have very concrete examples as to, as to why this is better for your bottom line and for your investors or, or public markets or, you know, whatever the case may be, then it takes off. But to get to that point, whether it's R&D or projects that quite frankly might fail, a lot of people can't stomach that risk to say, hey, you know, we're, we're going to develop this building or may or may not work. I think a lot of your investors are going to be like, eh, I don't quite have the appetite for that. But, you know, at some point, some of these larger firms are going to do it and it's going to take off. What I'm interested in all this, like genuinely, is that like the feasibility of this innovation, like we know we're in a crisis. CMHCI believes we need almost 6 million homes by 2030, 2 million of them being rental properties. And I mean, the perception that we seem to have is, well, we can't even get Eglinton finished their construction, right? That's going to be a construction for decades still, I'm sure. So like, what is the feasibility of this innovation? Is it, can we expect quick changes, things that could happen in the next two, three, four years that actually make a dent in this crisis that we're seeing right now? Or do we think it's a little bit part of its pipe dream, part of it actually can happen? These are some things that can happen relatively quickly so that we can really start going and hitting these benchmarks so we can get some real change. Do you guys have anything like, can give maybe a little hopeful interpretation of things that actually can happen in the next couple of years? I mean, just to start, I always find some of those figures that politicians trot out there in a press conference and whether it's the campaign trail or whatever, 
it's so funny because you, like, you, you can't really put any of that in perspective. The dates are so far. The amount of homes are are so great. How, how do you truly, I don't even know, six million homes by 2030 or four and a half million by 2035, you know, whatever these numbers are. I mean, to be quite frank, I think those particular targets in our current regulatory environment in the state of municipal planning departments, I don't think they're achievable. But what we've been talking about today, to Jonathan's point about step change in the construction industry, if you couple that with planning reform and the adoption of scalable, decentralized prefab, I think that would accelerate our ability to to get those targets immensely. Can you get through the planning process quicker? Is there more land that as of right, you can develop specific densities? Can you replicate buildings you've done in other locations and other markets without going through a lot of those, that same design process? And can you build it offsite with significantly quicker onsite assembly? Then we stand a chance and there's no question things are going to improve. You know, one of the things Jonathan talks about a lot, and I, I think he's bang on, is that in a lot of ways, Toronto is so perfect in terms of a market that should be able to drive innovation. You know, like we need housing, we have capital, we have very experienced developers, you know, we have unbelievable skilled labor and trades. We can be that market leader in this innovation, but not if if, if we maintain the status quo. There's got to be regulatory change and things to incentivize us getting there. But but there's no doubt we we can. But you know, to sit here today and say by 2030 we're going to build six million houses, I'm uh, un- unfortunately a little bearish on that. <laughs> well, it, it's the context, right? So can the current system do that? No, it can't. So then the question is, well, is there a system that can do that, and what does that look like, and how do you get there? I mean, this is how these problems need to be formulated. But as Gabe said, well, like at the high level, they they just get sort of put out there, but the problem isn't particularly well articulated which is what you need to do. I think with some of the regulatory change, there's this sort of obsession. Like, I think some of it comes down to communication and there's this real obsession of sort of landlord versus tenant and developer versus resident. And this idea that <laughs> to the greater public, the, the idea of a developer profiting or being successful is worse than addressing the housing shortage. And how can we make changes that are to the benefit of a developer? But when you look at our rental stock, I don't know whether it's 90% or 95%, it's from the private sector. You know, I'm not going to sit here. Like, I, I, I absolutely think governments should develop affordable housing, but it's deeply affordable housing. But it's, it's going to be a lot smaller volume than what the private sector can achieve. And... To be clear, we need everything. <laughs> you know, I think we've been talking a lot about rentals here, which, you know, which is our business and where we want to invest, but we need everything yesterday. We need more condos. We need more rentals. We need low rise. We need high rise townhomes, <laughs> deeply affordable units. You know, we right across the, you know, the entire gamut, we, that's, that's what we need. And so, of course, I have a bias here, but I think we're better off focusing on activating the private sector to do what they do best, 
which is build because they think there's, you know, an ability to make a profit. But when we're so obsessed with the big bad developer, the big bad landlord, a lot of times some of these solutions get a little bit clouded. You know, you sort of stop focusing on on the big picture, but people have to be incentivized. If you can make 5% putting your money in a bank, <laughs> you should be able to generate a return for taking on what is considerable risk. Development's risky and you should be compensated for that. So yeah, couldn't agree more with some of that. Landlords have definitely been demonized over the last little bit, which is completely out of line. But going back a little bit, you know, we've mentioned a few projects, your Victoria Park project, some innovation. Like, Can you name any successful examples or even case studies of purpose-built rental developments that have overcome some of these challenges that we've discussed today that can serve as a model to the future? To be frank, in this market, not really from a, a low and mid-rise purpose-built rental. I, th I think you can absolutely look to a company like Fitzrovia, which is developing absolute best-in-class, high-end rental, best locations, incredible amenity packages to companies that have been successful. But again, almost sort of take us full circle right back to the beginning. They're able to achieve this because they have the best locations and they drive the highest rents. And that's how this this whole puzzle comes together. But to your point, can we think of examples of innovations or overcoming some of these economic challenges at the mid-rise, low-rise level in mid-markets, mid-locations in Toronto? It's hard to think of too many examples. But you know, you look at some places in Europe and it's commonplace. <laughs> it's the standard. <laughs> Whereas for a variety of reasons, we're, we're not really able to achieve that here because a lot of the stuff would be illegal. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good point. Like there may be not examples here, but to your point, there are examples in other countries and regions. And you mentioned earlier, somebody just has to be first. And, you know, a lot of people don't want to be first to some of these things and risk failure. But I think we some people have to start thinking outside of North America and look at other models and how we can adopt those over here as well. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that 1925 Victoria Park, we were, you know, there's a lot of the inspiration for this, looking at things like an exterior single loaded corridor with a, a very large central courtyard, which are sort of key features to our, to our building, because we're looking at life cycle costs and we're looking at, you know, our operations in year five, in year 10, in year 15 and our mechanical systems and our utilities. And can we create massings that will allow us to operate the building more efficiently into the future? You know, it might cost a little bit more day one, but what's this going to look like? Can we future-proof this building so that we can operate it well into the future? And in a lot of ways, we, we grabbed aspects and borrowed aspects from, from other markets. It's a very unique building to North America, but none of the concepts that we employed were completely novel. They're being used, just not widespread in North America. Well, guys, we really appreciate your time, both of you. I think this was not only really insightful for people in the industry, but those who want to just learn a little bit more about the state of the housing market in general. If anyone's curious about like getting in contact with you guys or your website in general there, do you guys want to maybe give a short little plug where we can find you guys and follow what you guys are up to? Absolutely. Yeah, we clearly really 
enjoy talking about this stuff. So feel free to reach out anytime. I think you can find us pretty easily on on either LinkedIn or at wellgroundedrealestate.com. There's a phone or an email there. Feel free to reach out anytime. And we're always looking to chat further about these things. Awesome. Well, I think that does it then, guys. Like Gabriel, Jonathan, Matt, of course, thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you all soon. Awesome. Thanks you for having us. Appreciate it, guys. You've reached the end of another episode of Sink or Swim. Make sure to visit us at rentsync.com forward slash podcast to access show notes, key takeaways, and where you can sign up to our newsletter to receive free bonus content. If you found value in this show, please also remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Thanks for listening.